Welcome to California State of Mind, a new podcast from CalMatters and Cap Radio. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. And I'm Nicole Nixon. So, Nicole, I saw you were staking out the electors who put Biden over the top this week. What did you see there? Yeah, I was not allowed in the state capitol building where California's Electoral College met to give Joe Biden and Kamala Harris their 55 votes. So I was hanging out outside just in case there was any excitement or protests or anything like that. Um, And there wasn't. It was the Electoral College meeting that it has been in years past, which is, you know, um, procedural and kind of (laughs) boring. People were expecting this to be an exciting thing. And inside the building it was. Here's what it sounded like when California did put Joe Biden over the top. We today, the electors, have cast 55 votes more than any other state for Joe Biden as president and 55 votes for Kamala Harris as vice president. That's really cool to hear, Nicole. But it's funny because in past presidential elections, you know, the electors don't even get this attention that they've gotten this year. Usually voters hear the results of the election the week of, you know, people want to know if their candidate won and then they move on. And of course, no one pays attention to these procedural steps that happen, you know, months later, two months later to make it all really official. But that's not the only thing that happened here in California this week. Of course, a lot of attention on the vaccines that rolled out. And the fact that healthcare workers are the first in line to get it. Do you know if the governor or any state officials are getting it too? What's the order of priority? Yeah, I know the governor has said that he is going to wait in line just with everyone else. He's not going to get any priority just for being governor. Um, we've known for a long time that healthcare workers and nursing home residents are going to be the first to get it. They're in what's called phase 1A. And the state's now figuring out that next step. They're calling it phase 1B. And we don't know exactly who's in that yet. Um, It could be a few weeks away still. But there are discussions about maybe farm workers, maybe teachers, other frontline workers being part of this next group. But those decisions are still being made. Well, people are waiting for those decisions. At the same time, COVID is surging all over the state. We're seeing hospitals at capacity. But then there's also the holiday season and people are debating whether they should get together with their family. And, of course, state officials are encouraging people not to do that. And then an added layer on top of that is people's finances. As we've seen, lots of folks have lost jobs. Christmas is here. New Year's is coming. And also January rent is going to be due So I know that Californians are really thinking about a lot of things right now. Yeah, that's right. A lot of people have fallen behind on rent this year, and there is an eviction moratorium to help keep those people in their homes, but it does expire at the end of January. One of the people I talked to who is at risk of being evicted is named Patricia Mendoza. She's unemployed. She lives in Imperial Beach in San Diego County. She's a single mom and she has asthma, so she's afraid to find another job where she would interact with people and potentially get sick. And on top of that, she still could get kicked out of her apartment. It's a little complicated, but she did get an eviction notice, even though there's supposed to be a moratorium. So I sat down with her to talk about that and her situation this week. I was laid off April 5th, uh, 2020, and I didn't get my unemployment until June. We've been going through food donations, and I haven't paid my rent for June, July, and August. I'd rather feed my family uh, because unemployment is paying me right now. Um, after you know the the big 
$600 that they were giving an extra. Uh, after that, it's right now it's $53 a week and it's not cutting it. I thought that my divorce was one of the hardest things I've ever been through, but that just made me stronger. I got back up, I you know, went back to work, got out of that hole, not only for myself, but mostly for my children, you know? And, and right now, I, I can't, I'm stuck. I'm, I'm stuck, I can't go work the front lines because what if I don't come back? Before the pandemic hit, um, I was making $2,000 a month. My rent alone is 1500 so it left me with $500 to pay my gas and electric bill, to pay the internet bill because kids had to do their homework. The situation that I'm in now, I have to stretch every penny. I mean, I see a penny on the sidewalk, I see a nickel and I pick it up. You know, as an immigrant and a daughter of immigrant parents, we're from Tijuana, Mexico. And um, and my dad always taught me to work hard, to always be humble and work hard because that's the only way to survive. And I think that I've been doing that until now. Um, and I teach my kids the same thing. This is where we've lived all of our lives. I mean, I graduated from Sweetwater High School and I was the second for my family to graduate from high school. And um, I'm very proud of myself. But now I know there's a lot of people in my position that, that, that just can't get back up and go back to work. It's hard to hear the stories and it's just wrong. It's hard. It's hard and this is not gonna be a forever thing. This is, you know, I'm not asking for help forever. Patricia's situation is actually somewhat unique. Her landlord is threatening to evict her not because she's fallen behind on rent, but because the landlord wants to make repairs to the property. I asked her how she felt about that and what kind of help she wants to see from lawmakers. Stronger tenant laws, stronger protections for tenants. Uh, we know that AB uh, 3088 is not enough. You know, there's loopholes like the one I'm living now, you know, going through this eviction, why is it important to do uh, remodeling, substantial remodeling in my home if nothing's falling apart, nothing's breaking, nothing's leaking? Who do we listen to when the governor, Governor Newsom is, is saying shelter in place and you have your landlord saying, get out, here's your eviction? Who do we listen to? Who do we tell that our lives are valuable, that my children's life means something? You know, who do, who do we have to contact? Who do we cry out for help? Um, if, if you do end up having to leave your apartment, do you have a plan? You know, um, I was talking to my children and um, I, I think that my last resource would probably go back to Tijuana and um, and try to rent something down there because I don't, if I can't afford rent here, 
how am I getting evicted and to try to find somewhere else to live when I don't even have first month, last month, you know, the deposit. And um, my, my kids said, no, mommy, no. But I mean, that would probably be my last resource. I don't want to because, you know, it's not safe. I just, I, I really want to say that, um, you know, we're the first ones to get hit with this and we're the last ones to get assisted. You know, it hurts even more when, when there's nobody trying to help. When, when they know, and, and I know that we're hard working class people that just want to keep our families afloat. I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. And I so appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and share a little bit about what you're going through. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I know I always cry, you know, because it's, it's my life right now. It's what's going on with me and my children. You know, um, I'm just scared. I'm scared to, I'm scared to lose the roof over our heads because we don't know where we're going to go. But thank you so much for having me. We're going to bring in Nigel Dwara now. He's a reporter with Cal Matters and was the one to originally tell Patricia's story. She is one of an estimated 2 million Californians at risk for eviction. And that number is just stunning. 2 million people. Nigel, what do we know about who these people are, why they've fallen behind on rent, and what would happen if they lose their homes? What we know is that people respond to something called the census household pulse. What it does is it asks a bunch of people, are you worried about being able to make the rent next month? If you are, how are you paying for different things? So of the pure number of people who are worried about making rent you know, next month, or in this case, when the eviction moratorium lifts January 31st, that number has been climbing but they only count it by household. So what they found was there was about 600,000, maybe 700,000 households at risk of eviction. And they sort of extrapolated that to be, let's say 2 million adults. That's the low side of the estimate. So we could be talking about more. In terms of who they are, um, they are plurality Latino. Latino people have been hit very hard by this uh, in California. To the question of why they've fallen behind, I mean, I think evidently the pandemic has put a lot of people out of work. It's disproportionately hit people uh, of of low and moderate incomes. Uh, You heard Patricia say that when the $600 federal boost to unemployment ran out, that that was the majority of her money or a little more than 50% of her money for the month. There are two big programs. One's called Pandemic Unemployment Assistance. Uh, The other one is called PUEC. Both of those programs, a segment is going to expire December 26th. And then January 31st, the eviction moratorium deadline lifting. So you can imagine people running out of money at the end of December and then being asked to pay back rent, right? 25% of what they haven't paid so far for all the months they haven't paid it. So that likely means a lot of people are going to be on the street. What we generally see is people moving first into smaller and smaller places, then finding maybe moving in with family. Maybe you have people, you know, cohabitating that aren't even related. We talked to Patricia and she said the first thing she would do if you're out on the street is she would be in her van. So it's not necessarily going to be a tent put up right the next day, but it's very possible that in the duration of 2021, as this all plays out, we could start to see more of that. 
there's not a lot of time for state lawmakers and the governor to come up with a new solution between now and then. Um, do we know where things are right now and what they might be talking about to, to stop this, you know, wave of people being kicked out? There is some will in certain quarters to extend this. But on the other hand, um, the landlord groups oftentimes view this as a zero-sum game. That's not a judgment call, just that the longer the moratorium goes, the less money their members are going to make. So everything is a balance. And what they're able to achieve before that January 31st deadline, like you said, it's a tight timeline. We'll see. Let's talk about Patricia's unusual situation. So her landlord filed eviction paperwork, not because she fell behind on rent, but to do some repairs um, and get her out while those repairs are being done. Does Patricia have any recourse here? I think that's a question that certainly would be answered um, probably in court, honestly, uh, if it comes to that. They're not in litigation yet. My colleague Matt Levin and I earlier this summer uh, found 1,600 households across 46 counties that had been evicted during the pandemic. These are either things that had been filed before the pandemic that were carried out by the sheriffs during the pandemic, or they were public safety issues or something like this, or what we call the Ellis Act, which is somebody moving back into a property. So by hook or by crook, people have been put out during this pandemic. And indeed the roof may need repairs, but it's one of the mechanisms landlords can use if they do intend to evict. Is this a loophole in the eviction moratorium here? I think it depends on your perspective, right? If you're a tenant or a tenant rights advocate, absolutely it's a loophole. It's a way for somebody who wants to get you out to get you out and to put somebody else in there that's going to pay rent, maybe even pay more rent. Uh, I think for the landlord perspective, um, it's these are needed repairs. These are things that need to happen. So it's, it's tough to say whether it's a loophole or not, but it's definitely a mechanism by which this can happen. We should note here that Patricia and some other people you've written about are getting help from donors who read their stories. What does it say about the moment we are in that in some cases, the best way for people to get help is to share their story with a reporter and hope some generous person out there is willing and able to help them? It is, of course, heartening to hear that people read these stories and want to contribute and want to help these folks. The overwhelming message that we get is when will the government step in and do something about this? Um, that's the perspective of, I think, tenant advocates, the tenants themselves, and of course, the people who read the story and wanted to talk about it. Now, when we do these stories, we also get the response, well, what about small landlords? Why are you making landlords out to be the bad guys? And we're not trying to do that. We do want more landlord stories. And I think that some of the landlord stories, if you were to read them, would be pretty compelling too, and would have some, some pretty tough stuff. I don't mean the big corporate ones, but some of the mom and pop places, they've, they've hit tough times also. For sure. Nigel Duaro with CalMatters, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your reporting. Thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth, there has been a new bill introduced to extend that eviction moratorium through 2021, but you heard Nigel talk about how complicated this all is. I mean, I covered the first eviction moratorium bill over the summer. It was painful. These are like six-hour committee hearings because there's so much at stake here. Well, and so many people have been personally affected by this and aren't sure what to do, as we just heard. It's so complicated for the renters and also for many of their small-time landlords who are trying to help their renters and also asking the state for help and not seeing much coming on the horizon. And of course, hanging over all of this is the coronavirus and this new surge that we're in. 
One of the huge ramifications for this is that nurses and healthcare workers are feeling really burned out. And we are going to talk about that next. We'll be right back. Welcome back to California State of Mind. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. Well, Elizabeth, we've been hearing for a few weeks now that California hospitals are at or near capacity. It's why most of us are under stay-at-home orders. That's right, Nicole. And I think people are really cluing into this surge is impacting hospitals and the people who work there. I was even reading in some Facebook groups that families are making plans for where to go if they need to go to the hospital based on capacity reports. And of course, nurses are right in the middle of that. Because of the surge and the incredible pressure on hospitals, I invited Deborah Berger, she's president of the National Nurses United, and Sarah Colgrove, a nurse at UC Davis Medical Center, to talk about what it's really like to work in a hospital right now. So Sarah, I want to start with you. If you can paint a picture for us, what is life like right now at your hospital? What's a typical day look like? I think it's important to tell you about an assignment I had a few weeks ago where I was asked to work on a unit that was experiencing a large number of COVID cases as well as the staffing shortage. I started my shift at 6.45 in the morning with an N95 and a face shield. Each time the patient would call, no matter if it was just for help to the bathroom or a new box of Kleenex, we'd have to suit up in a full set of PPE, gown, gloves, face mask, and a shield. My patients for the whole day never saw my face. That day, I didn't take off my N95 till 3 p.m. when I got my first break. If anyone's been a patient or a nurse, they know that nursing is very intimate and the closeness that's required to be a good nurse is, is a lot. And it's complicated when you're working with COVID patients. You cannot socially distance yourself. So for three days on this unit, I help my patients like every other nurse help their patient and a lot of just emotional support as these were new diagnoses for all the patients on this unit. Have you found that it's different from the initial wave in March, or is the day that you're describing pretty similar to back then? I think this is really different. First of all, we didn't have hardly as many COVID patients as we do now, and definitely we're seeing large numbers of healthcare staff sick with COVID, whereas we didn't see that in March. We're really, you know, getting hit hard with staffing issues at the hospital. You know, a lot of discussion right now, especially this week, is the vaccination schedule. Are you planning to get the vaccine? And does it help you feel like you will be safer doing your job? Mm, Yeah, for me personally, I'm super excited to get the vaccine. And actually, I am set up and scheduled to get the vaccine at UC Davis uh, on the 20th of December. So that's going to be a great day for me. But the vaccine is not a replacement for access to PPE. So for me, it's just one component of making me feel safe at work. And there's a lot of other things that are actually more important to me right now. Access to PPE, safe staffing, and consistent break coverage. Those are probably my top three things that would help me feel safer at work. One of the things that you should know is the vaccine is anywhere from 94 to 95% effective. So that means that even if you get the vaccine, you can still contract COVID-19. And they also don't know if you're vaccinated, if you can still be a carrier of COVID-19 and uh, expose your family and your community to uh, COVID-19 inadvertently through asymptomatic transmission. So PPE is still key. 
Social distancing is still going to be key until we actually reach a tipping point where we have enough people vaccinated that that is no longer an issue. Deborah, what are you seeing as the president of National Nurses United in terms of what nurses need, what the state's response has been, what are you hearing, and what do you need to see from the state that the nurses would like? What we'd like to see from the state is more support for uh, real cross-training programs. We'd actually like to see more nursing school open enrollment because that is an issue. There aren't right now slots available. There's waiting lists, but we also still need PPE. We're 11 months into this and we still don't have enough protective equipment. We'd like to make sure that nurses can take the time off if they need to, uh, if they've been exposed to COVID-19. We'd like to make sure that nurses are getting paid for those days if they get sick from the vaccine. Can you talk a little bit about the impact COVID has had on your life outside of work? And how do other people react to you when they hear that you're a nurse? Are they concerned since you're around COVID? Outside of work, my life is probably like a lot of other people in Sacramento. My husband has been laid off since March. My children are struggling with virtual education, missing their friends, sporting events, music events. I miss happy hour. I miss socializing. And, you know, at work, because of social distancing as well, we don't have that same break room bonding time. So I think a lot of nurses, myself included, are, you know, are missing, are missing some of the things that really bring us happiness and kind of refuel us. And my friends, especially my non, non-healthcare working friends, have been nervous about being around me um, at times during this pandemic. And I don't blame them. We've stuck to the hanging out outside and always with our masks on and done pretty well, but it, it doesn't replace the real, you know, intimate hanging out, having dinner and connecting. I feel like it's made me a little more sensitive to how important it is to have a safe place to work where you feel supported and, and where you really feel like your work is meaningful. And I think it's also extremely frustrating and, um, isolating because as nurses, uh, our daily work involves close body contact. It includes uh, intimacy. It includes socializing, not only with the patients, but the other staff. And during this time, we can't do that. A lot of nurses are eating their lunch and taking their breaks in, in their car because They don't want to be exposed. And once you get home, there's a whole routine that you have to adhere to to make sure that you don't bring the virus home to your family. Removing the clothes that you wore at work, putting the clothes directly into the washing machine, and then, you know, cleaning yourself. And then finally, you can relax and and enjoy being with the family that you have. Can you give us a sense of what's going through your mind as you prepare to go to work? And then what are you thinking about when you're heading home at the end of a shift? The day that I told you about working on that unit, after three really intense days there, on my days off, I found that I was just really disconnected from my family, um, isolating myself. And I realized that I was scared that it was the first real experience I had had in a while where I'd worked with that many COVID patients and had the, that those many potential exposures. 
And it really shut me down because even though I knew that I had done everything right with my PPE and cleaning and showering when I got home, there's always that lingering thought in your head that you didn't do something right or that an exposure happened in the time before you had the opportunity to put on your mask or at the end of the night when you were walking to your car. I find that I have a lot of anxiety when I'm getting ready to go back to work after a stretch of days off because I'm not sure what I'm going to be walking into. I don't know what things are going to be like. The one thing for me is that when I'm getting ready for work, I kind of disconnect from everything and kind of make it as normal as I can make it when I'm going to work. So it's, I'm just leaving like I'm going for a regular day's work, but then I get to work and start putting on the mask, the face shield, the gloves, the gowns, the booties and hair covering. And then that's when it kind of like, yep, I'm at work and this is going to go on for a long time. And that's more when it hits me. It's when I start putting everything on that it weighs on me. What would you like people to know about working in a hospital during a pandemic? I want people to know that working in the hospital at this time is actually really inspiring, even though it's really hard, but that the patients make it worth it. Um, but this is, this is a two-way street. So I'm going to continue to show up, but we need some help. We need our community to reach out to our leaders and let them know that nurses still don't have PPE. And of course, always, please continue to wear your mask. Do not travel to see your family this holiday season. Um, plan those post-pandemic parties to reconnect and understand that actions, your actions, really do save lives. What about you, Deborah? Well, I've heard many times it's been said that nurses are the front line of this pandemic, but we're not. We are your last chance. So make sure that we're protected. We will make sure that you get the care that you need. Thank you so much, Sarah Colgrove, a float pool nurse at UC Davis Medical Center, and Deborah Berger, president of National Nurses United, for giving us this peek into what it is like to be in a hospital right now, working, as Deborah said, in that last chance place for people, for patients who end up under a nurse's care. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. I appreciate it. Thank you. So, Nicole, we've been hearing that message nearly all year. And of course, not just for us or for family and friends, but it's for the healthcare workers, too, who are meeting people at the door who are really sick, who are helping people through this time or helping them say goodbye to their family. So as we go into the holidays, everyone hopefully keeps that in mind. It's really hard. After staying home for nine months, it's not fun. We all feel exhausted. But I mean, the reason we implemented these stay-at-home orders nine months ago was to keep hospitals from getting overwhelmed. And so I think it's important that everybody do what they can to slow that down. And I just can't imagine how taxing it is to be a nurse and do that work day after day after day and you're decked out in really uncomfortable PPE. I mean, I'm gonna think twice about complaining next time I have to wear my cloth mask for a couple hours. I'm totally with you on that, Nicole. So we're taking a holiday break and we'll be back in January. Nicole, I hope you have a great holiday and I'll see you then. 
You too, Elizabeth. I hope you get some rest after this crazy year and have a good Christmas and a good New Year's. We'll see all of our listeners in 2021. Thank you so much for being with us and stay safe. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Nick Miller and Tess Viglund and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are our masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Dave Lesher is Cal Matters editor and Joe Barr is Cap Radio's chief of content. 